0: With me. Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would reveal the truth of Your Word to us tonight, that it would be implanted deep in our hearts, that it would invigorate us in our Christian walk, that we would serve You and love You, that we would not hide sin in our hearts and our lives, but daily repent, daily put it to death. By the power of your spirit, the blood of your son, your eternal plan for our salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-aven, near east of Bethel, and said to them, "Go up and spy out the land." And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, "Do not ha- uh, do not have all the people go up But let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up, up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted because uh, and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the lands will hear of it and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? This is the first of three sections concerning the city of Ai. And you may have heard it pronounced Ai, but don't be thrown off. We're probably both wrong. Um, but the, this first section, we see that Israel has broken faith. Somebody in their ranks has taken of the devoted things and they have been defeated at the city of Ai. And the second, the next section through the end of chapter 7 we will see the lord leading joshua to find out who it is and bring that person to justice and restore everything and then the beginning of chapter 8 we will see israel is successful in in defeating the city of ai and this just before this section that we've read we we see a completely different picture we see israel going forth and doing amazing things. Really, not Israel, but the Lord. They go to this fortified city of Jericho with this great wall, and they don't have any instruments of war. They don't have any great battering rams. They don't have catapults. These aren't even really trained men of war. They've been sojourners their whole life, wandering in the desert. What do they know of war? And yet, by walking around the walls of Jericho, the Lord gave them success. They fell down flat. They go in and they don't even record a single casualty in this battle from the side of Israel. This is an amazing victory. Nothing can stand before them. The Lord is clearly on their side. And then they go to to Ai and it's a very different situation. There's no great wall. This is an easy foe that that was going to be that was going to be a hard thing to do and it, easy fell down flat and they go here and they say well this is an easy foe we don't even need to bring everyone don't make everybody climb up that difficult he'll just send a couple thousand and they'll take care of it and they get fended off easily they go running fleeing 36 casualties When Israel took Jericho, they were not supposed to take anything for themselves. In 6, chapter 6, verse 18, we read, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest, when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. We spoke last time about how the whole city of Jericho is destroyed and and even there's a curse on whoever tries to rebuild it. It is a bastion of the wickedness that had been rampant in that land. And so it was a God's sign of judgment that it would be completely wiped away except for those who sought salvation and redemption, namely Rahab and her family. They were saved alive. But everything else destroyed. You're not allowed to take it for yourselves. It is a sign of God's justice and judgment in what He does. And so for anyone to take something of those things devoted to the Lord and keep it for themselves, the things meant to be for destruction, the person who owns these things is taking materials of judgment and destruction into Israel. And then Israel becomes a thing for destruction itself. This is what we see happening immediately. Right after the very next battle, Achan, the text says, in the next section we'll see exactly what he takes, but it comes out to about five pounds of silver, just over a pound of gold, and a very beautiful, well-made cloak. He hid it away where nobody else would see. Only he and perhaps maybe some people in his household would know about it. And yet all of Israel suffers this humiliating loss. It can be tempting to read this and, and. and over apply it and to think anytime things go wrong in my life God is angry at me so uh, my in, my investment didn't go well in the market what did I do? is there a sin in my life that God is judging me for or there's sickness in my family is there something going on it, things are not going right we oh, we can be tempted to read this and over apply thinking that God is is angry that this is how things are always happening. While this shows that God is, is in truly in control when we make those sorts of errors, it implies that we have control over what God does. Right? But this is not true. It is a terrible reading of the text that ignores all of the rest of Scripture. So many other people suffer. They suffer defeat. They endure hardship and anguish. And yet, those instances are not God's direct punishment for those particular sins. We think of Joseph, who was thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold into slavery. He was falsely accused of sexual assault and thrown into prison. All of these terrible things happened to Joseph, but it was other people's sin against him. And, it, and he, it, God speaks through the word and says that it was them doing it for equal, but God meaning it for good. And eventually, Joseph goes on to save them from a famine, to bring Israel into a place of prominence, to bring them where they're supposed to be. Yet those things that happened to Joseph was not God's anger towards Joseph. He suffered, but it wasn't God's punishment upon him. We also read about women in the Bible like Elizabeth, who could not conceive and didn't have children, and she felt great shame for that and desiring to have a child, but she could not. But we see that God had a purpose for her to show his great grace in her old age bringing John the Baptist the herald of Christ to be born through her we cannot look at failures and disappointments and simply deduce that God is disciplining you or someone else every single time sometimes our faith is being tested and strengthened sometimes we are being prepared for things that we do not know are coming but God has planned it For his greater glory. And the reverse is also true. We cannot presume upon God. That if we obey. That he is going to bless us in every way that we want. That is not what he promised for us. He has given us great promises. Earth shattering, life changing promises. That go for eternity through his son Jesus Christ. Things like if you confess your sins, he will forgive them. If you ask for wisdom, he will grant it. If, If you abide in him, he will cause you to grow in holiness. If you rest upon him, you will be with him in glory. He will never leave you or forsake you. These are the promises that he has said. Not the many other smaller things that we find disappointing in our life. Don't get wrapped up in the things of the world to the point that your joy is in them. Like gold and silver and a fancy cloak. This world is going to pass away and along with it are those temporary riches and pleasures. If you were in Christ, then you are on mission. And that is where we are going to draw the parallel here with Israel and with us the church, because Israel right here is on mission. If we remember in the previous weeks, God sent them there for a purpose. They are to exact His judgment on the people in Canaan because they have sinned greatly. All of the, the, the laws in the Old Testament, those things that we are difficult to even read about, were being practiced in Canaan. And God was patient with them. And yet it was time for judgment. And secondly, God led them there to fulfill the promise to Abraham. And as we see from the previous generation, it is not guaranteed that it will be exactly any any generation, but one that follows the Lord's command. Because when the previous generation was disobedient, he sent them out. But he would still be faithful to the promise. The land would be given to Abraham's children. Those two things, the judgment on the Canaanites and the promise to Abraham. They were on mission to do these things from God. But when Achan took from the devoted things, he associated Israel with the destruction of the Canaanites. And at that point, they were no longer the ones to perform judgment, but to receive it. If we see here the church, we too, are on mission. God sent us here to speak the gospel, to love each other as he has loved us. But if we hear his word and consciously, purposefully decide, no, I'm going to do what I want, to presumptuously sin, refusing to repent hide our secret misdeeds instead of putting effort into putting them to death why would God then choose to use us for his mission we know that in Christ we will not be we will not see eternal judgment if we truly trust and rest in him But we also know that if we are presumptuously sinning, hiding sin in our hearts God sees it. He is not ignorant. He is not a fool. And he takes it seriously. If we have a mission, something to accomplish he is calling us to something more than living any way that we like but rather part of the mission is following those commands. And if we want to serve God we must be active in killing our sin. It is never hidden. It affects those around us. And it truly destroys our ability to serve. I do want to note that this can sound overbearing. And I'm not meaning to say that if you stumble and sin and fall, that God isn't going to use you, you're going to be ineffective, and everything is terrible. No. But if you hold on to sin and say, no, this one, I'm keeping this one. This one's mine. Or if we say, God doesn't really see. He hasn't done anything yet. It doesn't really matter. How can we expect to be effective? How can we expect to see fruit? expect the God who hates sin to bless our ministry and our work. This is called sinning presumptuously. To say that I can do what I want because I have forgiveness. Rather than seeing that Christ has set us free from sin and so we can live in that way. But first I want to speak about how our sin is never hidden. Achan had hidden these things away. They were well hidden. Nobody in Israel knew why they were losing this battle at the beginning. But we will see in the next chapter that he had hidden it in or the next section that he has hidden it under his tent. Nobody could see it but him. But it was evident to God. It was not hidden from God. Have you ever known somebody who would never apologize? Who would openly hurt you, say things against you, do things against you, they would be open and blatant into to your face and they would never actually say that they were wrong. Or worse, they would even deny that they had done the things that they had just done. This is so frustrating and infuriating when this happens. How can you say you didn't do that? How can you say that you're not wrong? I saw you. You did it to my face and you still won't apologize. None of our sins are hidden from God. They are all done to His face. And so for us to hold on to them and say, No, I'm, I'm not going to fight this. I'm not going to kill it. I'm going to keep it and hold on to it is to behave just like this sort of person who refuses to apologize, refuses to to acknowledge what is openly evident to you. But God is patient with us. If we hate our sin, even though we fail every day, and we confess our sin, He is patient and forgives. But if we excuse our sins or pretend that it's okay to keep this one, I deserve this, or it's fine, we are sinning against God openly and blatantly to His face, not admitting that we are wronging Him. Or do you think that you can deny it? Our sins are clear and open before the Lord. But it is not just merely between us and the Lord. It also affects the people around us. For Achan, what he had done resulted in the death of 36 men. We see the mourning that occurs after this. Joshua is is weeping. He tears his clothes and he pours dust on his face. He puts his face to the ground. This is a sign of severe mourning. We may say it was only 36 men, but they, they were supposed to be under the protection of the Lord. We didn't hear of anybody dying in, from Israel and Jericho. And then they went over to this little tiny town that was supposed to be nothing. And they walk up there, And it is so evident that they are not under the protection of the Lord that they flee. They run away. They don't understand what's happening. Jericho fell like that. What's going on here? They don't know what to do with themselves. And they flee. They run away. And 36 men die. When we sin, it is never in a vacuum. It is not just me and my sin we sin against God and we sin against the people around us. It could be something direct, me saying words in anger, mistreating somebody or lying to them. Or it could be something indirect. It could be something that I do on my own, but it invites disaster upon me and the people around me by taking in Things that are addictive, being becoming addicted to drugs or gambling, will hurt my family. Even though I'm not doing something directly to them, they are hurt by my sin. If I want to associate myself with a, a dangerous group like a gang or the KKK or any sort of group that would tarnish and bring that sort of thing upon me, I bring it upon the people around me. I may now be doing something against you or you or you, but by what I do, I am bringing the disease and corruption and effects of sin to the people around me. Sin has effects. They naturally come from it and it grows and it changes you and it invites terrible things. And that is part of the reason why God judges it so severely. If we were to look at this section versus the next section where Achan and, and his household are put to death, we can look at this and say this is, this is the effects of sin and how it is causing pain and, and awfulness and defeat. And in the next section we see the punishment of sin how God is going to come in and put a sentence to the wrong that was done so that the corruption of sin and the pain and death that naturally comes from it will cease. It's not merely the direct effects of sins that occur because sin doesn't stay the same. Untreated, it grows and mutates and it spreads your pornography addiction will not stay a pornography addiction if you do not seek to kill it to put an end to it it will grow and mutate and get worse and those around you who are numb or and those 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 who become numb to the evil of sin will sin more openly And sinning more openly, others will see it and think it's not that bad. Well, they do it. And then it goes on to the next person, the next person, the next person. This is a mere picture of what we see from Adam. God said, do not eat of the tree or else you will die. And when Adam and Eve took that, when they disobeyed God and sinned, All of their progeny, all of their children also inherited that sin nature that they chose. It spread to everyone after them. We may ask, why would God punish all of Israel when only one man sinned? God was doing what he said he would do. He, he was protecting them and using them as an instrument of, just, of divine judgment. The Israelites realized that he, he stopped protecting them as soon as they start losing. That's why they lost heart. That's why they ran away. They weren't seasoned warriors. They weren't used to this. They won battles because God was their strength. Until he wasn't. This is the Lord's conquest, not not Israel's. He sets the parameters. And he specifically said that those belongings were his. They were devoted to destruction. They were a testament to his judgment on the wickedness of the practices in that land. And if anybody would take it for themselves, they would bring that destruction upon them. God only did what he said he would do. And how would it look for God to say this, and then Achan steals from the devoted goods and nothing happens? Look, God said he would destroy us, but nothing really happens. We can do what we want. He doesn't really care. Or he's not strong enough to oppose us. How would that look to outsiders? That God would not keep his promises or truly judge the wicked? Did the Canaanites just get unlucky? Is God truly a holy God? No. God fulfills his promises. By the truth of his word, Israel became a thing for destruction in that moment. God judges the wicked and the righteous, and every sin will be accounted for. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story for Israel, and it's not the end of the story for us. For those who are in Christ, we are secure in Christ because he is taken the penalty of sin upon himself. And yet, for those of us who desire to serve, who want to be effective, keeping sin inside of ourselves and holding on to it will still destroy our ability to serve effectively. In Revelation chapter 2, we read one of the letters to the churches that Jesus himself sends. To the church of Ephesus, he says these words. He gives them some praises, and and towards the end he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is great praise to hear from Jesus Christ about your church, isn't it? You're faithful to the Word. You're calling out false teachers. You are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ even to to the point of being persecuted. You're enduring patiently for His name's sake. But he says in the next verse, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The significance of that image is that John has just seen these lampstands all in a row. And they have these stars above them. And there's this figure of Jesus Christ in the middle. And he explains, these are the churches. These are the seven churches. And the stars that that he holds are, are their angels. And so for Christ to threaten to remove the lampstand from Ephesus means... That if you do not love, if you continue to abandon this love that you had at first, you will not be my church anymore. You did a lot of things good. Very good job. But if you do not love, if you do not repent of this lack of love, you won't be a church anymore. Ephesus abandoned the love that they had at first. And for that, they would no longer, if they did not repent, they would no longer be God's instrument of salvation by spreading the gospel and bringing others into His grace. For the Ephesians, this may have been an, an excused sin. Um... We cannot we cannot act and then make our proof text for how we interact with everybody, just Jesus whipping uh, driving out the money lenders from the temple. If that's the only proof text you have for how you treat people in your church and, and people around you, then that's a bad sign. Or if your example is Martin Luther's words to Erasmus and how he spoke to him. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord is clear. In John thirteen thirty four and 35, after the Lord got down on his knees and wrapped his cloak around him and washed his disciples' feet, he taught them. One of the things he said was, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is part of what it means to be the church and obedient to God's call. This is a clear and explicit command that God has for us. Just like He gave a clear and explicit command to Israel, do not take of the devoted things or you yourself will be a thing devoted to destruction. And He is true to His Word. And He calls us in the same way. By this, people will know that you are My disciples if you love one another and yet if we abandon that love we show that we are not the church the Ephesians were blind to their own sin of losing that love and so we have to ask ourselves, do we want to be useful do we want success in mission do we want to serve in God's kingdom because these things will happen with or without us, because it's not just us. God is on a mission, and it will happen. His kingdom will be built, the lost will be saved. The question is whether or not we will be a part of it. Will we be a part of bringing the lost to salvation? Will we be a part of this church growing? If your answer is yes, that this is what you want, then you must take seriously the responsibility to put sin to death in your life. It's not a silly thing or a joke or something to to feed and grow and excuse. And this does not mean that you have the power to save souls within your ability to avoid sin. Right? I'm not trying to encourage magical thinking. Where if I just do the right thing, if I act good enough, then people will go to heaven. And if I do, if I sin, then people will go to hell. No. God is sovereign. And He is calling you to service. It is a matter of whether you will be a part of that mission. We have to recognize that God hates sin. And that he saved us from it. He didn't save us so that we could sin more freely. He loves bringing salvation to the lost. And he wants us to be a part of that. Psalm 19.72 says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It's a beautiful thing to say. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Is that true for you? Can you say that with conviction in your heart? Because Achan had a very literal choice between obeying the Word of God and silver and gold that was set before him. And it turned out that silver and gold was more precious in his eyes. For you, it May be the same thing, or it may be something else. It may look different in your life. What is more precious? The beauty of the law of the Lord and what He has called us to, or the temporary pleasures and sins of the world. The corruption and evil and penalty of sin that we see here is great. It is hard to read a passage like this and find encouragement sometimes because there is death and there is weeping and wailing. But the harshness and the cruelty of sin point us to the greatness of the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this level of danger and corruption that He has taken upon Himself. That He has freed us from. That He has saved us from. 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks of this great salvation. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In Christ, we already have the greatest treasure that we could ever want. It is beyond compare, it is infinitely glorious and beautiful. And it will last longer than silver or gold because everything here will melt away at the word of the Lord if he chooses to. We could say with the Lord in Matthew 16, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Christ has given us this great treasure. What sin promises us cannot stand up to that. And so, for the joy of service and for the joy of the salvation that we have in Him, Let's go to Him in prayer to sustain us in a time of temptation. Lord, your word is holy. We pray that this would be stuck in our hearts, that would guide us, that we would hate the sin that you hate Lord that we would not cherish it but we would cherish you we pray for our hearts that we would not seek our our, our feet would not be swift to run to evil Lord but that, that they would that we would abhor the things that we that were formerly enjoyable in sinful days we pray for our children Lord that they would grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That they would see the beauty of your law not as a way of salvation, but as a revealer of your heart and what is good and right and true. That we may not need the warning that you gave to Ephesus that they abandoned their first love. It would keep us in that love. That we may cherish You. That we may treat each other rightly. That we may shine rightly as a true church that not only proclaims Your Word, but loves with the love of Christ. Lord, we pray for effectiveness. We pray for Your Word to go out into our community. We pray for conversion. We pray for hope and joy and love that Your truth would go out, that it would change hearts, that people would see the sinfulness, the wickedness, the awfulness of sin and run to You for salvation. That the corruption would not spread, Lord, but that You would bring salvation to us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.